Good morning. It is good to see each of you. If you're visiting with us, again, we welcome you this morning. It is good to have you here. It encourages us, and we hope that we can be an encouragement to you. I want to remind everyone, be sure and be back tonight. Our young men will be conducting our services at 6 p.m. tonight. We're thankful for our young people. We're thankful for the young men that are willing to do this, and we pray that uh, it'll be a great encouragement to them, but also that they can lead us in a wonderful and a powerful worship service to God. Let's be sure and be mindful of all the ways we can support them this evening as well as uh, with the refreshments and things that are needed following since it is a winter series and we'll have several visitors with us and you'll hear more in the announcements about that. But be helping with that in every way that you can. Keep in mind that the yellow uh, request forms for your prayer requests, they don't have to be on these pieces of paper, but they're available out in the foyer, each end of the foyer and also at the Welcome Center. If you could complete these things that you would like for the congregation to be praying on your behalf as we close out the year, uh, please be sure and complete those. At least by Wednesday night, if you could turn those in, that way we could be and have those available uh, for all of those concerns to be prayed on Saturday. Mark one hour Saturday and come as you are. It's at your convenience from 6 in the morning until 10 in the evening on the hour there will be prayers led in this auditorium. Usually there will be a small gathering that will gather usually right in front of this section and there will be two men that will lead prayers uh, beginning at the top of the hour. Sometime it lasts 15, 20, 30 minutes, sometime 35 or 40 minutes. But everybody in this congregation be prayed for by name. Every ministry will be prayed for. Every request that deacons have submitted to pray about their ministries will be prayed about and all of the prayer requests that have been submitted will be prayed about. We'll be thankful for how God has blessed us this past year. And we'll be looking in anticipation with our request of how we hope and pray that God will continue to bless us next year. Please mark a time to come by, maybe even more than one time. And be a part of the prayer day, uh, but also let your request be made known. God blesses us richly. And let's never forget that the things that we enjoy... They truly are from God. Let's pause and give thanks and let's appreciate them and let's be prayerful about the future that it will remain in God's control. I'll go ahead and tell you there's some things that's wrong with this story, uh, but it makes a real good point, so stay with it. Three, four preachers were having a theological debate and, and they had a disagreement and three believed one way and, and another believed another way. Well, the one that was kind of on his own, he knew that it's what the scriptures taught. He knew that it's what God believed. So he went over to the side and he said, God, in order to make a point to them, will you please give a sign that they can't miss that I'm right? So he walks back over among the group and, and sure enough, here comes this dark storm cloud and it gathers right over those three individuals. And the preacher says, there it is. See, see, you're wrong. I'm right. God gave you a sign. They said, oh, it's summertime. Storms can come and go so quickly. That doesn't mean anything. So the man goes to the side again. He prays. He says, God, please send them a sign they absolutely cannot miss. So it goes back over. Another storm cloud comes. This time lightning cracks all around these three individuals, these three preachers. And then a booming, deep voice comes from heaven that says, He is right. The preacher says, see, there you go. I'm right. The other three, three say, what's that prove? It's still three against two. The 
Do you realize that there are a lot of people today that believe that? They believe that God is just another voice. His commands, His wisdom, His guidance would be perhaps no more important than someone else that they might highly respect of their wisdom or their commands or their guidance. This morning, I want us to think about a topic that I believe is probably one of the most misunderstood topics in America and I guess maybe in the world today because we try to understand it from a human standpoint. We're talking about the wrath of God, and we're talking about understanding the wrath of God. But please note this. If I try to take the wrath of God, and I place the wrath of God on the same plane as the wrath of mankind, I totally will be confused and misunderstand what is the wrath of God. I believe one of the reasons that it is so completely misunderstood is that many times when people discuss the wrath of God, they think about their own wrath. And let's admit, oftentimes our own human wrath is very irrational. It's very emotional. It's very inconsistent. As a matter of fact, many times our own wrath is out of self-interest. We, we use the expression, we fly off the handle, and it's because of something we want. And we lash out at someone. And then later on, we have to come back around and we have to say, look, I'm sorry. I lost my temper. I was angry. And and I'm sorry for what I said. I had no right to say that. I was wrong what I did. I'm sorry that I did that. Friends, please understand, that's man's wrath. That's the way man handles wrath in a sinful way. That is not the wrath of God. We'll mention it here and we'll talk about it a little more later on in this lesson. The wrath of God is very consistent. The wrath of God is not tied to emotions. The wrath of God abhors that which is evil. God hates sin. So therefore, the wrath of God is consistent in punishing every sin. That's why God is just. As we think about the wrath of God, a second reason that I believe that we struggle to understand it sometimes is because we, in our human nature, prefer to reshape God. You know, in Romans, the first chapter, which is just a passage that's been so capably read already for us this morning, but if you read on just a few more verses below that, you see individuals that they reshaped God so much that they shaped their God into an idol made with their own hands. Please note this. I do not have to have an idol that I bow down before in order to reshape God. We can reshape God in the sense that we can simply take all the wrath out of God in our minds. For example, I do not use this illustration lightly. I mean absolutely no humor in this. This is is sad, but I don't know of a better way to illustrate this to you. How many funerals have you been to in the last 10 years? Some of you might say, I've been to 10 or 15. Some of you might say, I've been to 30 or 40 or 50 in the last 10 years. How many of those funerals did someone at that funeral say something to the effect about the goodness that was in the life of the deceased? And therefore, we know 
that they are in much better place now. They're at peace with God and they're at heaven. Friends, how can it be that everybody dies right with God? Unless we are a society that has reshaped God without wrath. Jesus said in Matthew the 7th chapter and verse 14, when he talked about the way to heaven, he says, narrow is the gate and difficult is the way and few there be that find it. Friends, most people do not die saved. That's Jesus' words. But we, even religious people, have shaped God into a wrathless God. Oh, I don't believe the God that I would serve would ever allow a person to be condemned. Oh, I don't believe the God that I serve would ever allow a good neighbor to be condemned. This morning, could it be that you and I could have a much greater understanding and even appreciation for God and God's wrath if we see God's wrath through the view of the cross. That may sound strange. You may think to yourself, I've never thought about the wrath of God when I've thought about the cross. You know, oftentimes what comes to our mind is the grace of God or the redemption of God or a God that justifies us, or a God that saves us. But friends, the reality is we can appreciate the cross to its fullest until we see the wrath of God. Think about these series of questions just by way of introduction, and then we will develop some answers from the Scriptures to these questions. What does the cross show us about the wrath of God? Let's look at a passage this morning, the book of Romans, the first three chapters of Romans, where wrath is mentioned several times. By the way, did you know that wrath is mentioned far more times in the Scriptures than grace is mentioned? What's interesting also is that in the book of Romans, not only in the first few chapters is the wrath of God mentioned several times, but the righteousness of God is mentioned several times. I can't fully understand the wrath of God until I understand the righteousness of God. And that all comes into view when we see the cross from God's perspective. This brings us to another question. Have you ever viewed the cross from God's standpoint? Now, I'm not suggesting that you and I can see and understand everything the way God does. But God does give us a glimpse of the cross from His perspective. It is easy for us to sit back and to appreciate what the cross brings to us and offers to us. But have you ever stopped to consider what it costs God? What it reveals to us about God? Let's take some time this morning to see the cross from God's perspective. But then also a final question by introduction. If we don't understand the wrath of God, we can understand the grace of God. Throw a can we on the end of that and it'll be a question, okay? As, as we think about that, is that true? Can we really fully understand the grace of God if we don't fully understand the wrath of God? I want to run this next scenario by you on this screen here. And again, this is by way of introduction, but this is what we're hoping to accomplish in this lesson. Notice this, grace without wrath has no appeal. Think about that. If there's no wrath, what's the big deal about being saved? Wrath without severity has no condemnation. Well, the penalty is just a little $5 fine. Hey, I'm not worried about 
I can pay a $5 fine. What if the penalty is condemnation? Now that brings a much stronger appeal that we need some help. Condemnation without substitution has no hope. If the condemnation for sin is actually death, Romans 6 and 23, the only way you and I can live is that someone die in our place. So therefore, Jesus in our place is grace. And that's when we can start to fully appreciate everything that God has designed. I hope you have your Bibles open. If you will, look back again to our text in Romans, the first chapter. And let's glance over some things in the 16th, 17th, and 18th verse of Romans, the first chapter, as we think about what is it that God wants us to see about the grace and about the wrath of God. In verse 16, we have the third of the I am statements that started back in 14, 15, and 16. And in verse 16, this I am statement is Paul saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. That gospel, now we have it in a written form. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, what is this gospel going to do for you and I today? Notice in verse 17, for in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. We know what is right because God tells us in the gospel, God tells us in His Word what is right. Have you ever been in one of those situations where it just seems like because of all the circumstances around that the right thing to do is to tell a lie? Now, that's human reasoning. Even at a time like that, we can still know the right thing to do is to tell the truth. Someone says, I don't don't see how you can believe that. Do you see all of this that's going to happen if you tell the truth at this point? You need to tell a lie. No. God has revealed to me in His Word the truth, the importance of not lying. I cannot see it by reason in my own eyes at this particular moment, but I know this. Righteousness has been revealed from God and it is the right thing to tell the truth. We can do that with every command God has given us. There'll be times it doesn't look right from our own perspective. But you see, the reality is it's always right. How can we know that? God's revealed it to us. But notice what else has been revealed as we look at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Brethren, this is amazing to me. I've never noticed this before this week. We have the righteousness of God revealed. And I think this just shows us the importance of God wanting us to understand not only wickedness, but how it stirs His wrath. Notice, He didn't say here these exact words. The righteousness of God is revealed and the wickedness of God is revealed. What did He say when He came to the negative? He said, the wrath of God is revealed. God wants us to know what is right, the righteousness. But He wants us to know this is what stirs my anger. And it's not a rage. It's not an emotional out of control. But the bottom line is God is a righteous God and God can't mingle with sin and God does not want His people mingling with sin because then that separates Him from His people. And he wants that sin removed out of their lives so that he can be one with them. So the wrath of God stirs his anger because it separates him from his people. And notice the wrath that stirred here. Notice 
It is against ungodliness. That's all the things that would be sin in our relationship of not being like God. But then also notice a second thing that he said there in 18 is also all unrighteousness of men. So all sins that we would commit against God, all sins that we would commit against one another that therefore would be against God, whether it's against God, whether it's against man, all of it, all of it stirs the wrath of God. As we think about this, look at this definition of wrath as we go back in a lexicon. And and notice it says, Properly, desire is reaching forth or excitement of the mind. By analogy, it's violent passion, justifiable abhorrence. By implication, it's punishment, anger, indignation, vengeance, wrath. Has God ever showed us, ever in the past in the Scriptures, that sin has to be punished? You remember the very first sin? Adam and Eve, very first man and woman, they touch and eat of the fruit. And immediately God comes down and He says, Ah, you're the first man and woman. I'm, I'm going to let you slide here. No, that would be partiality. The second chapter tells us that God is not a God that is partial. He couldn't be righteous. He couldn't be just. Even His wrath is just. Well, I, I tell you what, it was just a small sin. It was just touching a fruit and tasting a fruit that I told you not to touch or taste. I'm not going to hold you accountable this time. We'll wait till it's a big sin. No, he's a just God. Sin has to be punished every time. Every sin has to be addressed. The very first few pages in the Bible show us the wrath of God. Flip over a few more pages and we see the flood. It shows us the wrath of God. Sodom and Gomorrah, it shows us the wrath of God. Us are reaching up to to steady the ark on the cart. Shows us the wrath of God. Ananias and Sapphira, that they give probably a generous gift, but the problem was they lied to God. God has to address every sin And their life was taken. Friends, I need to come to as clear of an understanding of the wrath of God as God has revealed for me to understand. If you would, flip a page and let's go to Romans the second chapter. In Romans the second chapter, we get a glimpse of judgment day. And it's interesting what he calls the day of judgment in verse 5 and 6 of Romans the second chapter. Leading up to that... In verse 1, 2, and 3, he's talking to some religious people that they would say something was a sin, but yet they would turn around and commit that sin. Now, do you think those people understand the wrath of God? There's something not connecting there. And so we ask them a question. Do you think some way you're going to escape the day of judgment? Or if that's not the problem, maybe four is the problem. Maybe you just hate the goodness of God. Isn't it wonderful that God gave us a way to escape His wrath, that we can be saved? Maybe someone that's not escaping it just hates God's goodness. And then finally, He gives a third option here. And let's read this in 5 and 6. But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are, interesting here, treasuring up for yourselves wrath, in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds. 
Out of all the things you could treasure up, can you imagine treasuring up God's wrath? Now we, we read in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaching us to, to lay up treasures in heaven, talking about our generous giving, and we look forward to the day of judgment when we can receive the reward from that which has been treasured up. But friends, we can treasure up sin and sin's consequences also. And uh, he uses that picturesque word here to say someone, even if they're religious and they're going about and they're sinning, maybe they think they're escaping the day of judgment. Maybe they, they just hate the goodness of God. He says, it doesn't matter what you're doing. Let me tell you what, in rea- or what you think you're doing. Let me tell you in reality what you're doing. You're just treasuring up. Well, what day are you treasuring up to stand before And here he calls the day of judgment the day of wrath. In other words, all accounts will be settled on the day of wrath. Do you remember? I know a lot of you don't. Because I grew up kind of like in another generation because of where I grew up. But some of you remember the old stores where your credit was kept on a little tab. And you'd go in there toward the end of the month or the first of the month, and they say, I believe it's time for you to pay your tab. The day of accounting. You owe. I still have my, my great uncle's ledger book where he had a huge general store out in the country, and every farmer, every family's name was there, and what they owed and how they paid. Oh, they paid with six chickens and four dozen of eggs and a calf. And we still have all of those ledger books. Friends, the day of judgment will be a day of wrath for all those that have harbored up wrath. And the Lord says, let me pull out your account. I see all these sins that you had no concern about them. That's the way you wanted to live. That's the way you wanted to stand before me. Well, here you are. You're before me now. And today is your day of wrath. He also calls this very same day the day of revelation of the righteous judgment. Note that. Everyone will know on that day it will be revealed to them how righteous God's judgment is. Let that sink in. There won't be anyone on the day of judgment that says, that's not fair. I didn't do that. You're falsely accusing me. You don't have evidence. Everyone will know that it is a day that it will be revealed how righteous and how wonderful God is. How can this be? Because they're going to see on that day and understand on that day what God did to remove wrath out of the lives of mankind. And on that day, mankind is going to realize that that's what God wanted for everyone, and the only ones that don't have it are those that have decided they don't want it. 
Well, what is it that God wants us to see? I'd like for you to read with me one more page over in your Bible, the third chapter. We're going to read 23 through 26. But as we do this, we can only concentrate on two terms here. But if you, hopefully you have your Bibles open, you'll also notice on the screen, we underline most of the key words here. And then, and right after we read this, we're going to look at a chart. But on this chart, we're only going to look at two words that really magnify how God deals with His own wrath. That's important to understand how God deals with his own wrath. Everything up to this point has been leading up to man stirring the wrath of God. Romans, the first chapter, it's been revealed, but man stirs it. Romans, the second chapter, man even knows he's got to stand before God on the day of judgment. But he stands before God as a, uh, as a time of wrath, the judgment that is a time of wrath. But surely there has to be something better. We wouldn't be here this morning if there weren't something better. We wouldn't be studying about the cross for a quarter if there wasn't something better. Notice verse 23. It's all this about the wrath of God and how man stirs it is a crescendo that brings us up to this point. He has said back in verse 10, there's none righteous, no, not one. And 23 says again, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified. How? Freely by His grace. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom... Notice this, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate, that's key, to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. Here it is again, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Notice this next screen and and notice we have God. And sin has separated us at the bottom of that page from God. But God did something because He wanted us to be justified. That's a court term to say a penalty had to be paid. He did not want us to have a sentencing of condemnation. He wanted us to have a sentencing to say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And so by grace, we can have that sentencing. But notice He wanted us to be redeemed. We were slaves on an auction block and our master was Satan. Jesus wants to buy us, but He won't buy us unless we want to be bought. And so he wants to buy us. It's available for him to become our master. Those are beautiful things that we immediately recognize when we sit at the foot of the cross and we look at the cross, we say, look what he has done. His grace has reached down to me. He wants to justify me. He wants to redeem me. Have you ever stopped and looked at it from God's standpoint? What about when he says, I gave Jesus as a propitiation, his blood. Now, there are a lot of writings today among scholars that water down the wrath of God. Many, many do not like to think of God as punishing. I'm not suggesting to you that that's why Some of the translations choose to not use the word propitiation, but instead talk about a sacrifice of atonement. I'm simply telling you this morning that we miss something whenever we don't stay with the clear teachings where the Lord said, I want you to understand Jesus as a propitiation. Atonement is helping us to be brought back together again by the blood of Jesus. And no doubt that must have been in Paul's mind as he's writing this. But friends, that's not the noun he used in the original text. He did not use the word for atonement. He used the word propitiation 
Because propitiation deals with Jesus being a sacrifice to appease the wrath of God. I have to accept the fact that God's wrath is reality. Sin has to be punished. Now, let me give you an analogy and then just a powerful twist at the end that's right here in the Scriptures. Let's say that we have a husband that's been married and the anniversary could be divided by five. That makes it even a bigger anniversary. And he forgets it. Oh, that's not good. You know, it was the 10 year, the 15 year, the 20 year, the 30 year, the 40 year, and he forgets it. He comes in that evening and, and oh, a beautiful supper is, is prepared on his anniversary by his wife. The china is out. A beautiful gift. His favorite putter or, or whatever it might be that to him would just be like, oh, the ultimate gift. It's right there. It's being offered to him. And he feels about this big because he doesn't have anything. And it's not just that he doesn't have anything. He knows that it's going to hurt his wife. And he's crushed because he knows she's going to be crushed. I am hurting my wife. And so the man immediately begins to think, what can I do to appease this pain? What can I do to make this right? And before he can even start dreaming up how to put this into words, she says, Honey, I know what you would have wanted to do. You would have probably wanted for us to go on a trip. I've booked the trip. And by the way, I paid for it with my money. I want it to be a gift to you because I know you want us to be at one. You want us to have a close relationship. You want us to be good with each other, well with each other, unified with each other. Do you see the twist on this story? Instead of the wife being in a rage that says, You fix this! I haven't been married to you all these years for you to treat me like this. You fix this. Which would be our human nature. I want you to glance back again. Let's go back. Glance back again to verse 25. Where did Jesus come from if He is our propitiation? Whom God set forth as propitiation by His blood. Our sin separated us from God and stirred His wrath. And it ought to be us, the one saying, what can we do to make it right with you, God? What can we do to, to be one with you again? Well, there's nothing we can do. We can't save ourselves. Sin separated us. And isn't it awesome when we absolutely couldn't do anything, God says, let me give the gift. Let me give the gift that will pay the price for sin, that will appease the fact that sin has to be punished. What are you going to give, God? I'll give my only son. God, you are going to give your only son so that our wrongs could be made right so that we can be one with you again. That's why he says, when you look at the cross you're seeing a demonstration of righteousness. 
That's God's righteousness. Please stay with me on this. All this time has been to get to this point. When we see Christ on the cross, it's not just our grace. Grace is being offered to us. It's the fact that God says, my wrath consistently holds sin accountable. And if Jesus is going to become the sin for mankind, He must die. I'm a righteous God. I'm a consistent God in my justice. If Jesus is going to become sin, I've got to watch the thorns press into His brow. I've got to watch His back be ripped open. I've got to listen to His agonizing cry and not intervene. I've got to watch Him spit upon His beard pluck. I've got to watch Him drag a cross until He falls beneath it. I've got to watch Him affix to that cross. I've got to watch Him gasp for breath. I have to watch Him die because sin has the punishment of death. You and I have never seen righteousness like we see the righteousness of God when we sit at the foot of the cross and we look at the cross through Jesus' eyes. How many of us would have stopped our children from dying like that? But we struggle to be righteous like God. God's righteousness is perfect. His wrath is also perfect. God demonstrated His righteousness by giving a gift to appease the wrath. When I began to understand the cross, I can begin to appreciate even the wrath of God and what God has done to save us. Every sin will be punished. Those who stand on the day of judgment on their own merit will pay the price for their sin. It will be a day of wrath. But those who stand on the day of judgment through faith, serving Jesus, not because anything that we've done to deserve it, not because of our own righteousness, but because we have reached out and we said, God, I accept you. I want your son to justify me. I want your son to redeem me. I want to be his servant and he be my master. Lord, I realize the propitiation that He is if I accept Him. I realize the demonstration of righteousness. By faith, God, I accept You. Now, how did individuals accept God by faith? They believed that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. Note this. They were willing to repent of sins because if sin is really that bad, people that follow God repent realizing sin really is that bad. I want to turn away from it. It hurts God. And if it hurts God, I don't want to have anything to do with it. But how do we have the forgiveness of that sins? We're willing to confess before men and be baptized into the watery grave of baptism to come out of that watery grave to be saved. That's where God forgives us of our sins. Friends, this morning... This morning, I beg you to realize 
that even though a world about us and pretty much a religious world about us has reshaped God to be wrathless. He really doesn't care if we sin or not. That's not what the Scriptures teach. That's not what God has revealed. But what He has revealed is so much better. He is a God of wrath. But He's also a God who offered a propitiation for us. If we can help you in any way, come as we stand and as we sing.